you will read a variety of things about your church, about this church. And one of the things that I have written in the section called About Us goes like this. The center of gravity around which our services orbit is, quote, the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. First Corinthians one twenty one. I go on to say, since this was the model and mandate of Christ and his apostles, the very pinnacle of our worship service is expository preaching where the God intended meaning of a text is carefully conveyed and passionately applied to the contemporary issues of life. Nothing else can nourish our souls, bring us into conformity with our precious Savior and bring glory to God like the unleashing of truth through the faithful preaching of his word. And that is precisely what we will endeavor to do right now. So let's take our Bibles and through the foolishness of preaching, we will see what God has for us this morning. Will you turn to Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, where we've been for many months? Matthew chapter 12. And we will be looking this morning at verses 38 through 42. Matthew 12, verses 38 through 42. And we will learn much this morning about this issue of putting Jesus to the test. Beginning in verse 38, then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign. And yet no sign shall be given to it, but the sign of Jonah, the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so shall the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh shall stand up with this generation at the judgment and shall condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south shall rise up with this generation at the judgment and shall condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Dear friends, throughout scripture, we are routinely warned about Satan. We are told to beware of the schemes of the devil. To watch out for his cunning deceptions. Watch out for the enemy of our souls. Guard ourselves against our adversary that the Bible calls the ruler of this world. Even the God of this world, the prince and the power of the air. The one who ingeniously employs tactics of deception to prevent the reign of Christ in the hearts of men. In fact, in 1 John 5, 19, we read that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, the great serpent, the tempter of Christ and the tempter of all who are united to Christ through faith in him. He is the one who rules the demonic forces with which we struggle. 
The word of God tells us that they are rulers and powers, world forces of this darkness, spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places in Ephesians 6. He is the ruler, the Bible tells us, of deceitful spirits that communicate spiritual lies to false teachers through visions, through counterfeit writings considered to be sacred, through distorted interpretations of Scripture, resulting in staggering deception even within the ranks of the church. And as a result, you can look around even the church of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will see people like the Apostle Paul warned us of of in Ephesians 4.14, little children. They're like little children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness in deceitful scheming. And in today's text, we're going to see Satan at work. And once again, we will see one of his favorite tactics employed. And that is to use religious hypocrites, in this case, the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious phonies to somehow deceive people and certainly to even tempt Christ. We've seen religious phonies throughout the history of the church, and they love to be in positions of authority. The religious experts, men who are considered to be spokesmen for God, but in truth, they are like terrorists. They are like spiritual terrorists inside the church. They blend in with the religious culture and they destroy naive and innocent people with cunning deceptions. And hypocrites will typically be very hard to see. They're hard to spot because they are so ingenious in their deceptions and Satan has encouraged them in his own ways. But might I say that the primary and most reliable way to discern or determine hypocrisy is to somehow discover a person's attitude toward Jesus Christ. Like the Pharisees, the hypocrite may wear a religious garb. They may have all of their theological ducks in a row, so to speak. They may perform religious rituals. They may even be moral and kind, even outstanding citizens. They may be great, great spouses, great parents. They might even teach Sunday school, perhaps sing in the choir. Never miss a church service. Indeed, they might manifest every imaginable external form of righteousness. But dear friends, hear this. If a man does not trust in Christ Jesus alone as the savior of his sin and live to serve him as sovereign king, then he is an enemy of God and he will perish in his sin unless he repents. And I might hasten to add that what I've just said is something that Satan will even now be at work in the hearts of those who resent it to cause you to forget it and to cause those seeds to not be planted and take root in the soil of your heart. Well, such were the scribes and the Pharisees, religious 
enemies of Christ, wearing the mask of piety and the cloak of humility. They, in fact, hated Jesus, though most knew precisely that he was indeed who he claimed to be, the Messiah, the Son of God. But this is how Satan works in conjunction with the wickedness of the human heart. You see, because man is dead in his trespasses and sins, man naturally hates God. And what I mean by that, even though he might say, oh, but I love God. But if you see that a man hates the word of God, hates, therefore, the law of God, and therefore hates the fact that God says that he has violated the law and that he is doomed to an eternal hell unless he repents and places his faith in the saving and atoning work of Jesus Christ. Unless they believe that, they are dead in their trespasses and sins and they hate God. And the natural heart, therefore, will naturally refuse to acknowledge their sinfulness And ask for the forgiveness that is found only in Christ Jesus. And again, Satan will provide a myriad of ways to justify this attitude. Everything from false religions that will convince men that they can achieve righteous, the righteousness of God on their own by their own efforts to also convincing men that he doesn't even exist, which, of course, would be the presupposition behind Evolutionary theory that is taught in our schools around the country, it is at the root of secular humanism, it is at the very root that dominates contemporary thought today, that God doesn't even exist. Well, in today's text, you will be fascinated to see Satan once again employ his same old tactics of deception as he tempts the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, to help us understand the dynamics of this text and what is going on between this unseen battle between Satan and God, between Satan and his kingdom versus Christ and his, I have divided the text into three basic divisions that I hope will be helpful. First of all, we will see the diabolical temptation. We will see... How Satan masterminds this temptation and the diabolical temptation. Secondly, we will see the divine castigation. We will see and hear from the mouth of Jesus what he has to say about their wickedness. And then thirdly, we will see the judicial obscuration where Jesus deliberately and judicially speaks to them with ambiguity. The diabolical temptation, the divine castigation, and the judicial obscuration. Now, remember the context, dear friends. Jesus has just publicly healed the demon-possessed man. The crowd is absolutely awestruck because suddenly this man can speak and he can see. And the Pharisees have been quick to say, no, 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 hang on a second. Don't get too excited here. Don't think that this truly is the son of God, because this man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. And of course, as we have learned, Jesus pronounced judgment upon them and has indicted them with the unforgivable sin, the sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, because they not only deliberately rejected Christ, having full knowledge of who he was, but worse yet, they attributed the works of the Holy Spirit manifested through 
the God man Jesus to Satan. And such a sin is blasphemous. It is unforgivable. It is the evidence of a calloused heart that will eternally reject the mercy of God. So Jesus renders a blistering denunciation against them. He called them an evil brood of vipers who will someday give an account at the holy bar of justice for their wickedness. And now, after this scathing condemnation, the scribes approach him. The scribes, the most erudite scholars of the law of Judaism, they were like the attorneys of that day. And for fear of the crowd's reaction, they speak with a poisoned politeness to Jesus, words dripping with sarcasm. And they say to Jesus in verse 38, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. And dear friends, here we find ourselves at the first section of this text, the diabolical temptation. Now, that their request is diabolical is well proven when we consider that they had already, according to Matthew 12:14, counseled together against him as to how they might destroy him. Dear friends, this is amazing wickedness in action. Knowing that he was indeed the Messiah and having been justly condemned for their blasphemy, they now have the gall to put Jesus to the test, to lure the sovereign ruler of the universe into violating his obedience to the father's will and instead to use his powers to serve himself. Does this sound familiar? Well, of course it does. Remember back in Matthew four. When Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness, there are some amazing parallels. You might remember that text. Remember that immediately after Jesus' baptism, according to Matthew 4, 1, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Well, you might ask, well, why would the devil want to tempt Jesus? Well, the answer to that is simple. To solicit him to sin. And if Jesus would sin then the plan of redemption would be forever thwarted. You see, friends, everything that Satan does is an, an attempt to frustrate the plans and the purposes of God and his desire to glorify himself. Because Satan wants to reign in the hearts of men. And he will do whatever it takes to establish himself upon the throne of men's hearts. So... As is often the case, after a great spiritual mountaintop experience, namely the Lord Jesus' baptism, the words from the Father that came down from heaven, Jesus is immediately taken into the wilderness. And he was taken there to prove his kingship and therefore to be deemed worthy as our Savior. You will remember the text describes how that the wilderness was such a forbidden place, a barren place filled with wild beasts. And he was there 40 days without food, so he's physically weak, he's vulnerable, which, by the way, is often the time the tempter comes in our vulnerability. And you will recall that the devil came to him and said, if you are the son of God, command these that these stones become bread. What do you mean if? Well, in the original language, it could be translated since and certainly the Satan knew precisely who Jesus was. 
since you are the son of God. Use the powers that you have set aside in this season of humiliation in your humanity and command these stones to become bread. Why don't you satisfy your, your immense hunger? And by implication, he says, in fact, that, well, you know, it's obvious that your father has grown indifferent to your plight. So, Jesus, why don't you do something about this? Now, think of the parallel in the text that we're in this morning in Matthew twelve thirty-eight, when they say, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Don't you hear in the background Satan doing the same thing? Think of this. Jesus has endured constant criticism. And if any of you know what it's like to be criticized relentlessly and to be slandered relentlessly, it is absolutely exhausting. And Jesus is undoubtedly exhausted with this. The scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, have been dogging him every step of his ministry. He knows that they're wanting to kill him. They're looking for an opportunity to trip him up. He's exhausted from enduring all of this, always having to defend, having to teach, having to rebuke. And then they say, teacher, which, by the way, was a title that they would use for the only person that had the necessary credibility in Judaism to teach divine truth. Teacher, why don't you do something really sensational to really prove once and for all who you are? Why don't you do something grandiose? After all, it seems silly for the Messiah to be constantly rejected and ridiculed. You must be weary of such abuse. You deserve better than that. Why don't you show us what you can really do? Enough of this humiliation. Dear friends, please remember, just parenthetically here, that Satan always tempts us in ways that pander our pride. Jesus, why don't you show us who you really are? By the way, Satan tried this same ploy later when Jesus hung on the cross. You remember in Matthew 27, beginning in verse 40, they said to him, You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God or since you are, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross and we shall believe in him. He trusts in God. Let him deliver him now. If he takes pleasure in him. For he said, I am the son of God. But dear friends, Jesus would never succumb to such temptation. Not in the wilderness, not on the cross. Jesus would never doubt his father's goodness. Jesus would never doubt his father's providential care. He would never, out of frustration, suddenly take matters into his own hands, as we often do. He would not, therefore, yield and suddenly use his omnipotent powers that he had willingly set aside in his humanity, in his humiliation. 
Because had he done that, he would have violated his father's will to humble himself by become obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He could not have therefore been our Savior had he done that. Dear friends, if we had no Savior, think of the plight that we would now find ourselves. Likewise, in our text in Matthew 12, Satan would have conquered him had he succumbed to Satan's demand. Now, don't you know, the Lord Jesus could have caused suddenly elephants to fly around like butterflies. Oh, he could have done any number of things. He could have caused the sun and the moon to dance across the skies, all in an effort to silence the ridicule of the multitudes, many of which knew exactly who he was. But he would never do that. He would no more do that than he would turn those stones into bread. He would no more do that than he would call 10,000 angels to take him down off of the cross and destroy his enemies. This was not the plan and the purpose of the Father. And he came to do the Father's will. And as we think of our text this morning, remember that Jesus had already given them thousands of signs, he had done thousands of miracles. You see, friends, the issue is not a lack of evidence. It's not an issue of a lack of credibility. The the, the request that the scribes and the Pharisees were bringing to him was not a sincere request for another sign due to legitimate confusion. They weren't saying, you know, Jesus, we, we really appreciate what you've done. But you've got to understand there's been many others that have come along and claimed to be the Messiah. And 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 and, and with all due respect in, in utmost humility, we're asking you, would, would, would you just do one more thing so that we can so that we can make sure so that we can bow before you and worship you if, in fact, you are the Christ? You see, that was not the mentality. The issue was to tempt him to sin and sight Satan was behind it all to get him to abandon the father's will. To get him to somehow exonerate himself in, in, in a fit of frustrated pride by putting on some type of a star show at their request. Dear friends, these people would not have bowed the knee to Christ no matter what Jesus would have done. They hated him and he knew it. Like the Christ rejectors during the tribulation who will experience the most inconceivable display of supernatural signs in the history of the world. Miracles of, of, of cataclysmic judgment. Enormous miracles at the hand of Jesus and the people know it. Yet they refuse to repent. May I remind you of this? You need not turn there, but if you will recall, in Revelation chapter 6, you, you begin to see the, the seal judgments. And you will recall that there in the sixth seal judgment that will occur during the time of the tribulation, there will be a great earthquake, the te- text tells us. And the sun and the moon will, or the sun will become black as sackcloth, and the moon, the Bible says, will become like blood. Stars will fall on the earth. The word of God says that the, the sky will split apart like a scroll 
And then in Revelation 6:15 it says, "And the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, and they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb." You want signs? Here we have a glimpse of the type of signs that will be seen before the Lord returns. Don't think for one second that if people have enough signs, they're finally going to repent. Later on in Revelation 9, we read that there will be 200 million demons released from the great river Euphrates, which, by the way, is in the area of Iraq. And you've heard me speak on this before. Some profound implications with what is going on there now. But these demons will kill, the Bible says, one third of mankind. And then in verse 20 of Revelation 9, the text goes on to say, And the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues, in other words, the other third that, or the other two thirds that have not been killed, the rest of them repented because they saw all of the miraculous signs. Is that what it says? No, not at all. It goes on to say they did not repent of the works of their hands so as not to worship demons and the idols of gold, of silver and of brass and of stone and of wood, which can neither see nor walk nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their immorality, nor of their thefts. By the time you get to the fifth bowl judgment. You may recall there's a series of six seal judgments or, or seven seal judgments. It moves into the seven trumpet judgments and then seven um, bowl judgments. But by the time you get to the fifth bowl judgment in Revelation 16, you have another catastrophic demonstration of divine wrath. And it is so severe that in verse 10, it says that they gnawed their tongues because of pain and they repented. No. And they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. Dear friends, unless you still or lest you still believe that if people could just see enough miracles that they will finally repent. Let me take you to Revelation 16 and by the seventh bowl judgment, there will be a great earthquake. The Bible says such as there has not been since man has been upon the earth. And Babylon the Great, which will be the capital of Antichrist's empire, will be split into three parts. And the text says this. Every island fled away and the mountains were not found. Now, friends, that is some earthquake. And huge hailstones, about 100 pounds each, came down from heaven upon men. And men repented. Text says, and men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, because its plague was extremely severe. Beloved, today, as we look around our religious culture, you see people constantly clamoring for one more miracle, another sign. When the charlatans come to Nashville, as they do from time to time, 
people will line up for days to get a seat in the stadium. Why? So that they can come and repent of their sins. So that they can come and make Jesus their Lord and Savior. So that they can come and glorify God? No. So that they can come and satisfy their own selfish lusts to be healthy, to be wealthy, to be wise. Because after all, in the minds of the unredeemed, God exists for me rather than thinking I exist for him. For many, Jesus is merely a cosmic genie that exists solely to do their bidding. A neighbor came to me not too long ago and very kindly invited me to his church, which is not too far from here. And he said that they're having a speaker come, a man by the name of Jesse Duplantis. And I had heard of him, but I wasn't real sure who he was. Uh, he, when he said that he is called the Raging Cajun from Louisiana, I had my doubts as to his credibility. But be that as it may, I, I listened and And he said, I'd just really love for you to come because uh, he is, and I'm quoting, he is so anointed. And we talked for a few minutes and he began to describe some of the miraculous things that he believes this man has been a part of. So I thought, well, let me do a little research here. And I thanked the man and I said, uh, um, you know, that I would have to to look into it because I, I would really like to know more of who this gentleman is. Well, I did a little bit, bit of research and my worst fears were realized when I read what this man believes. To give you one example of how this works, he spoke about a passage of Scripture in Luke 4.18. And in that text it says, this is Jesus speaking, uh, and, and he's quoting actually out of Isaiah. Jesus says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach the gospel to the poor. Now, underline the word poor in your mind to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set free those who are downtrodden. Well, what does this text mean? Well, certainly anybody that understands the context and basic Bible interpretation would know that what I'm about to read is not what it means. But here's how this man interpreted this. He said, and I quote, the very first thing on Jesus agenda, according to this text, was to get rid of poverty. Would you like to know why some people, he goes on to say, including ministries, never get out of poverty? It's not because they aren't smart. It's not because they don't have windows of opportunity. It's because they're not anointed. If you're not anointed, poverty will follow you all the days of your life. Jesus' first objective was, therefore, to get rid of poverty, end quote. Dear friends, this is not just poor interpretation. This is idiotic. And yes, this is indicative of what Satan does as he distorts the word of God. And appeals to the lusts of people's flesh. And it's tragic. This kind of satanically inspired false teaching is pandemic these days. Luring naive and desperate people into believing lives, lies and causing them to claim promises that God never made. Well, people crave signs and wonders today. They did in Jesus' day. And, but Jesus knew that Satan was behind it all. 
He understood that Jesus was behind the diabolical temptation. But he also understood the selfish, self-absorbed, self-righteous hearts of the multitudes that were clamoring around him, who desperately wanted to be the recipients of some miraculous Messiah so that they could be freed from Rome, so that they could enjoy the blessings of the kingdom. They wanted a Messiah who would heal all of their diseases and, and, and fill their bellies and, and make them all rich. They were, in, they were saying, in fact, satisfy all of our desires for pleasure. If you're the Messiah, we want to see what you can do to see how we can cash in on it. We are ready to cash in on the covenantal promises. After all, we deserve to be blessed. We're the chosen people. Now, friends, please hear this. Jesus has never, never wanted men to come to him because he is some kind of a genie in a lamp that can be massaged in a certain way and have a few words spoken so that he can grant our wishes. But dear friends, he wants man to respond to him, not as blesser, but as Savior and Lord. He wants men to believe in him based on their passionate and unrelenting longing that is within their hearts to have their sins forgiven, not because he can perform some miracle for them. The word of God says that he came to seek and to save sinners, not to entertain and serve self-righteous hypocrites who reject him as Savior and Lord. There's a billboard down on I-24 when you come out of town. I'm sure you'll notice it the next time you drive that way. It's over on the right. And on that billboard, there is a, an advertisement for a church that's down off of Old Hickory Boulevard. And on the billboard, it caught my attention the other day. It says one mile to a miracle. One mile to a miracle. Huge letters. And, of course, that church is absolutely packed. They have to have police down there to help people get in and out. And, you know, I said to Nancy as we were driving by, I wonder what type of crowd they would get if the sign said, One mile to forgiveness of sin. One mile to forgiveness for sin. See, nobody wants that. Because after all, they don't see their sin. And yet, dear friends, there is no greater miracle that has ever been manifested than the miracle of the new birth. You think about it. That marvelous regeneration that takes, takes place in the spiritually dead. When we have been or when we are delivered from the kingdom of darkness, placed into the kingdom of light. When we are judicially pardoned, when we're suddenly clothed in the righteousness of Christ, when we are born again of an incorruptible seed with an immortal destiny, when we're suddenly and instantly made partakers of the divine nature of Christ, when all of a sudden we have a transformed heart and the old things pass away and the new things come, when we're given a new mind and a new song, when we're adopted as sons into the family of God, and when suddenly the Holy Spirit of God takes up residence within our hearts to teach us and comfort us and strengthen us and encourage us and convict us. Oh, what a solemn 
mystery this is. A miracle of miracles. One that should cause us all to cleave to the glories of the cross. Cause us to hunger and thirst after righteousness. And flee from the very appearance of evil. So Jesus sees through the diabolical temptation. And secondly, he responds with a divine castigation. Notice what he says in verse 38. First, they say to him, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. And he responds in verse 39. But he answered and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign. And yet no sign shall be given to it, but the sign of Jonah, the prophet. An evil, in other words, a worthless, vicious, degenerate and adulterous people. Adulterous has the, the, the idea in the Bible of being apostate. Unfaithful Israelites, like an adulterous spouse, you have violated the vows of your covenantal relationship with God. You evil and adulterous generation, you hard hearted blasphemers, many of which are are rejecting me with full knowledge. You self-righteous hypocrites, you satanic brood of vipers. And you're craving which, by the way, literally means demanding. You're demanding a sign from me? Why? So that you will repent of your sins and bow before me as Savior and Lord? No, no, no way. You want me to jump through your hoops. And as I do so, I yield to Satan who wants me to abandon my state of humiliation and glorify myself and thus thwart The glorious plan of redemption. I'll not do it. Besides, Jesus knows that regardless how many signs he does for them, they're not going to repent. Verse 39, no sign shall be given to it but the son of Jonah, the prophet. And here we see a common reaction from the Lord towards hard hearted, calloused unbelief, namely judicial obscuration. You might say, well, that's a funny way to put it, but I couldn't come up with a better word, so we'll use that. Let me explain what I'm saying. Here Jesus obscures what he says. He deliberately makes it hard to perceive, hard to understand. He speaks with deliberate ambiguity. He purposefully chooses not to express things clearly. In verse 39, he talks about the only sign you're going to get is the sign of Jonah the prophet. Now, friends, they had no idea what he was referring to. They they were clueless. They did not understand that this was referring to his impending death and resurrection. And you might say, well, why didn't he say it clearly? Why did he deliberately obscure the truth? Well, there's really two reasons. One, he did it as an act of judgment, whereby he is judicially sealing them in their deliberate and calloused unbelief, cutting them Off forever from not only another sign that would point to him, but also from further spiritual enlightenment. And secondly, it was an act of mercy. Please hear this. By blinding them to even more truth, he is protecting them from greater condemnation. Because, dear friends, the more light a person sees and the more light that person rejects, the greater the eternal suffering We learned that when we studied the condemnation against Bethsaida and Chorazin and Capernaum in Matthew 11. By the way, 
It's for the same reason that Jesus obscured truth to the hard-hearted unbelievers in Matthew 13 when he began to speak in parables. And we'll learn more about that when we get there. So the only miraculous sign that he would give them was that of Jonah the prophet. Verse 40, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And of course, this was a reference to the historical record of Jonah, who foreshadowed the coming Messiah Christ. He was a type, or in other words, a, a, a prophetic picture of Jesus' death and burial and resurrection. A miracle of incomprehensible proportions. By the way, that miracle of the resurrection would be the last sign given to the unbelieving world that would involve Jesus directly. Not so much so for believers, because after the resurrection, you will recall that he appeared to the disciples on several occasions. Later, he ascended into heaven before their very eyes and so on. But then in verse 41, he once again condemns their calloused wickedness by drawing a contrast between the exceedingly evil and barbaric Gentiles of Nineveh who repented Versus his own covenantal people, the people of Israel, who did not. Notice in verse 41, the men of Nineveh shall stand up with this generation at the judgment and shall condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. In other words, Jonah's not standing before you. The son of God is standing before you. And many of you know it. And there stood the Jews in the presence of their Messiah. A privileged people, a people who had been recipients of the law that came directly from God on Sinai, people that had experienced hundreds of years of divine faithfulness and miraculous interventions, miraculous deliverances and protection. They had been the recipients of divine mercy and pardon and grace. They had seen over and over God fulfill his promises to him, to them. And yet now they reject him. Now contrast that with the Ninevites that had none of these privileges. And yet they repented. In effect, what Jesus is saying is simply this. The humble repentance of the Ninevites will stand in condemnation of your proud rebellion. And then notice he once again castigates them for their unbelief with yet another historical fact from the Old Testament that they knew very well. In verse 42, he says, the queen of the south shall rise up with this generation at the judgment and shall condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. This was, of course, a well-known reference to first Kings 10 verses one through 13, where we read of an Arabian queen, a pagan queen, some twelve hundred miles to to the south. And it would have been over to the, the, the West who heard of the fame of Solomon, according to first Kings 10, one heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord. That's what aroused her curiosity. And the word says that she came to test him with hard questions. So this pagan queen hears of Solomon's testimony concern the, concerning the Lord, concerning Yahweh and the way he had blessed him and his life. And she came on her own initiative to investigate. 
She had none of the same privileges of the Israelites, and yet she came. And as a result, she placed her faith in the one true God and said, according to 1 Kings 10, 9, Blessed be the Lord your God who delighted in you, setting you on the throne of Israel, because the Lord has loved Israel forever. Therefore, he made you king to do justice and righteousness. And so, like the repentant Ninevites, this queen also will stand in contrast to the wicked rejection of the Israelites on that day of judgment. Well, what a grief this must have been to Jesus. His own people continuing to reject him. Even in light of his perfect revelation Little wonder he was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Friends, might I say to you as we wrap this up this morning, there's not a day that goes by that I don't grieve over some of you and some that might be within the sound of my voice that aren't in this room. Many people that I know personally, personally who maybe even aren't a part of this fellowship, but some that are. I grieve because some of you have enormous privilege. You have come from Christian homes. You've got Christian, in some cases, family. Some, some, some of you have Christian spouses. Many of you come to this church and you constantly hear the Word of God presented with clarity. You know the gospel of Christ. Many of you even know your own need to humble yourself before the Lord Jesus as Savior and Lord, but you don't. I don't know what else to do but to pray and to preach. Dear friend, may I warn you with a solemn warning that every time you enter this place and hear the Word of God and then walk out these doors... With the same indifference and apathy that you had when you entered, you are storing up wrath against yourself. And you are exposing yourself to a greater condemnation. And I grieve over that for you. And I fear that some of you have grown so comfortable with your cultural Christianity that you don't even see it. Please hear this. If that is you, even as the Ninevites and the Queen of the South will stand in judgment someday of the privileged yet hard-hearted Jews, so too will their humble repentance stand in contrast to your rebellion. May I invite you to the Savior once again before it is too late. Oh, dear friends, don't harden your heart. Don't harden your heart. I leave you with these thoughts. There is a heart as hard as stone that wants its sin left alone, resenting truth it mocks and sneers indifferent to the Savior's tears. Seared in conscience, dead in sin, it hears the word, then with a spin, it twists and turns, distorts and lies, embracing Satan's alibis. 
without the slightest fear of God. Upon his law, it laughs aloud, then smugly dons religious coats, and then with pride, its ego gloats. Oh, but there will come a day when for its sin it will repay. Oh, God of mercy, change that heart before to blackest hell it parts. Let's pray together. Father, while the warning from your word is stern, it also has behind it the glorious and sweet resonance of grace. We thank you for that strain of music that we can hear when we think of how great is your faithfulness and how much you love us and how your mercy and your grace endures forever. But Lord, we know that we can never experience that grace unless we first confess our sin. And Lord, for those that continue to play that game, how I pray as your servant that you will move upon their hearts with the strongest of conviction. Overwhelm them, Lord. And I pray that your spirit, by your grace, will regenerate them that they might Enjoy the glories of Christ forever. Lord, for the rest of us that know and love you, give us discernment to not fall victim to the cunning deceptions of the enemy. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray and for his glorious sake. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit cvctn.org or call 615-746-0113.